Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. I came to Linux from the film world, as I've, I think I've said before, and in the film world and the, the digital imagery world, there's a, a you, you think a lot, whether you want to or not, about image representation, about how an image is seen on one screen versus another. Because you have to, it's, it's something that really, really matters when, when an image gets sent from your desktop to someone else's desktop, it, you have to kind of be able to predict how they're going to view that image, what that image is going to look like to them. Part of that, and there's there's a lot to it, believe me, uh, but part of it is the gamma setting of their display. You see this a lot of times in video games as well. Uh, you, sometimes if you're playing like a horror game, especially, um, th th there'll be a, a screen when you start the, the game and it'll tell you to move a slider until you can just barely see this icon or, or whatever. And, and that's the, the idea is that they're going to adjust the, the way that your display is shooting lights into your eyes so that things are darker. This broadly speaking is called gamma correction. And gamma correction or, or gamma in, in, in imagery or digital imagery is, well, I guess not just digital, electronic imagery, because it, 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 it was a thing for CRT as well. Um, but for, for digital or for, uh, tech, uh, for whatever I just said, um, is, is kind of a big deal because you just don't know the setting of someone's display. You don't know how bright it is going to be. And I guess with old monitors, they tended to, I think, kind of fade over time. Like they would get sort of more dim the older the set got. I could be getting that mixed up with something else, but I think that, that there might be some truth to that. Either way, um, in in even movie theaters, when you're projecting, you, you've got a projector, maybe the light bulb is starting to fail in the projector. So the, the brightness isn't quite as bright in one theater as another. Uh, and, and certainly for, for screens, you can adjust your, your brightness sometimes through not really hardware, but firmware, I guess, because there's sometimes a button on your monitor, a physical button where you can adjust the brightness. But then, of course, your computer itself has a brightness adjustment, or at least KDE does, and that's called K-Gamma, and that's the software that we're talking about right now. So K-Gamma is a KCM, uh, KDE configuration module, module uh, for system that, that, that you access typically through system settings, but you can also launch it because it's a KCM as a standalone application. So you can just type in K-Gamma if you want, or like I say, you can go to system settings and then go into display and monitor and then go down to the gamma selection. And there you see a, a very, um, well, not a very, but a, a possibly familiar kind of uh, a display where you see levels of, by default, levels of gray from pure black to pure white. So that's 000 to FFF. 
or zero 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 nope lost count zero 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 to f f f f f f in, in segments so it looks like there's two two four six eight ten yeah about 20 segments between dark the the pure black and the the pure white you can also view the same information on an rgb scale a cmy scale a dark gray scale, which is just the grays against a black background, or a mid-gray, which is just the gray against a gray background, or a light gray, which is kind of the whites against a light background. And the idea is, with using sliders, you can adjust that for yourself to, 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 to set how, essentially how bright your KDE desktop renders the images that it wants to render for you. And by images, I mean everything. The desktop, the panel, the applications that you're running, and then, of course, any actual, like, photo images or graphics inside of all that. So this is a setting, a software setting, for the the brightness, essentially, of your of your screen. Now, th- th- it, it technically speaking, it goes a little bit further than that. It, it isn't just brightness, or rather, it, it is brightness, but it has... A, a sort of a, a knock-on effect to other other aspects that you might not kind of think about um, in 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 nature. Um, the vision, your your vision, is more or less, on average, a linear a linear thing. You see all of the different shades from zero to one, uh, assuming everything in between is a decimal thereof, which is how gamma is calculated. I don't know how it's calculated in real life. I'm not, I, I didn't take like medical or biology classes, but it's more or less a linear thing. You, you can see these shades of deep, deep, deep darkness, and you can see these shades of really bright whites and, and light grays and things like that. And you can more or less on, you know, if you're an average person with average, quote-unquote, average eyesight, um, which I am not, by the way. I'm quite below average in my eyesight. But, I mean, not as bad as it could be, right? But, I mean, it's below average. Um, but generally speaking, you can see all of the shades. There's, there's just lots and lots for you to look at, and there's lots of distinction uh, between between each shade. You can get a lot of subtlety. You look up at a cloud and you don't just see a white blob, you see a, a white blob with a silver lining and then a whole lot of variation in between. And that's a good thing, and that's what we're trying to emulate, usually, when we show images on a computer screen. But the reality is that there's just not the bandwidth for all of the different textures that the proteins in your eyes and the the neurons in your brain can process we just can't we don't we're not there yet with computers so by necessity a computer is showing you a a constrained view of of an image and that 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 starts in your digital camera if it's something that you've taken a photo of your digital camera um even if you're taking raw like at some point, you have to take all that, you know, it, it has a defined color space. And there's not really, I don't think, I think people would argue, well, I guess there is a color space in reality. Um, but it's really hard to pinpoint what that would be. I mean, it's somewhere between ultraviolet and x-ray, I guess, you know, it's like between those those two extremes. And that's a really big space. In, in digital imagery, we, we, we have to fit all of that space into something a lot smaller 
that can get stored on a drive, that can preferably not take up the entire drive, and then that can be loaded and displayed quickly on your screen in, in a you know a relative quick way, um, depending on what you're doing. If you're doing professional photography, uh, you, you might be willing to wait a little bit longer than than otherwise. But generally, we want it we want it to be relatively quick to to load and so on. So um, and to process. So what happens is that it gets it gets put into a color space, and there are lots of different color spaces out there. And talking about color space directly is out of scope of K Gamma, but there there is a color space, and there are a couple of popular defaults and a couple of professional defaults and and so on. And you'll hear some of them thrown around, or you might see them as uh, color, color profiles listed. Uh, in GIMP, CIE one nine three one Rex seven oh seven oh nine yeah seven seven oh nine and so on. So there's color space, and that constrains the the spectrum, the the literal spectrum. Now the the space between a say a a a very dark black and a very dark well absolute black let's call it absolute black. And a very dark gray, the, the, the sort of the space between those is greater when you pump up the gamma. And it is less when you, uh, what I call, or what, what in the industry we called crushing the gamma, but you could, I guess, lowering the gamma. Um, you could, you can lower the gamma and those dark grays all of a sudden start to basically look just like one big blob of absolute black and those highlights might start to look just like a bunch of absolute highlights when you when you pump up the gamma so adjusting that has sort of this this effect on kind of the the contrast of your screen i'm discarding my changes that i've been doing to k gamma as i as, as i've been talking um, so, you, so it's not just the brightness. It is, it is the, the individual values of, of color and whether or not you can tell two different shades of the same color, whether you can differentiate the different shades. And so that has a, a really, really major effect on sort of what things look like. And if you if your gamma is set to something different than someone just down the hallway, then when you send them an image, they're going to see a slightly different image. I mean, first of all, they're going to see a different image anyway because they're a different human being with a different set of eyeballs, with a different brain that processes color differently, it interprets color differently, and all of these weird sort of like things that most of us take for granted because we think, well, surely red is red and blue is blue and green is green. Well, not not necessarily. Uh, it, it's really up to the individual to define what really is red and what really is blue and what really is green and what's really bright and what's really dark. Those are those are valid points of discussion. And so having no absolute sort of point of source of truth for what is correct means that getting your display setting quote unquote correct is a pretty complex issue. Not only do you have to see kind of kind of consider what your software has been set to to consider what what display is being displayed on, what the firmware in that display has been set to, if anything. I mean, well, I guess it has to be set to something. But also there's just kind of an innate difference between one monitor and another. Um, they're just, you know, they're different physical devices. So they're going to potentially be a variation in, in sort of the just latent uh, brightness level. And 
all of that stuff. Even the finish on the screen, people have, have noted that sometimes on the glossy displays, uh, things look a little bit richer, whereas on the matte displays, they look less rich. So, and then, of course, outside ambient lighting, like, are you in a dark, completely dark room? Are you in a completely dark room with a lamp on? Are you in a room with the window open, the curtains open, to the outside light? All of that affects how you see your display. K-Gamma is, um, it's not all that complex, to be honest. I mean, I should say, it's not a complex application from the user perspective. You have a couple of different dials you can move around. You've got Gamma red, green, and blue, and you can save that setting for uh, uh, system-wide, and you can set it to sync your screens so that if you have more than one screen, they'll both you know, be adjusted by, by, what you're, by what you're doing. And that's K-Gamma. That's it. I have not looked at the code of K-Gamma. I don't know the math that it's doing, and I don't know that that would make any difference to my understanding of it, but that's K-Gamma. Um, it, it is not a super, um, you know, this is not the this isn't color management. This is just K-Gamma. It's a way to adjust the brightness of your screen to your liking. Whether that ha- it, you know, that doesn't innately change the things that you are looking at through that screen or on that screen. Uh, it doesn't have any effect on how other people are going to perceive the things that you're creating on that screen. It is simply what your screen is set to. That is K-Gamma. Uh, as you can probably tell, I really sort of like talking about color and visual perception. So yes, I spoke a lot more about that than it probably was was required, but um, I do like the topic. I find it fascinating. Okay, let's talk about K-geography, which normally I find a lot less fascinating than color theory, but th- this is kind of a fun application, K-geography. It is part of, obviously, the KDE education um, uh, collection, and it, it, it isn't, I mean, I, I will admit, it is not that exciting to me. But there's, there's one little thing about it that, that I do find intriguing, and I'll get to that in a moment. But um, K-Geography, you can click Open Map, and then it's got a bunch of different maps, um, sort of preset or, or whatever, um, predefined maps in, in it. And, and, and I don't know how to make maps, so, I mean, I don't know how to make maps for K-Geography to use, is what I meant to say. And, um, so I don't know, I don't know how to customize this for anything but what it provides you. And what it provides is a, a map that is kind of split up by some kind of region, and it kind of de- it it depends on on what those regions you know what you're looking at what map you're looking at in order to um wh- whether it you know whether it's a state or just a a, a country or a um a, a county or just wh- you know whatever a province whatever they call it in that in in that in the place that you are are looking at it in but you can click around the map and and learn some stuff about it so I'm looking at the New Zealand map, so I click on this south, the south portion of the North Island, and it looks like that's Wellington, and it, it tells me that Wellington, uh, the capital of Wellington, is Wellington, which, I mean, that's true. Really, it's just Wellington. I mean, Wellington is Wellington, so it's, but, but Wellington is a big, a big region, so the city there is, is indeed Wellington, but technically the whole space is Wellington. Um, and then if I click on the south part, it looks like, there's this place called Otago, and the I guess the capital of that is Dunedin. 
uh, Southland, Invercargill, and so on. So this all sort of checks out. This all feels pretty spot on. It, it's identifying sort of the self-identified regions of this country, and it's kind of picking up the major cities of that of that region. Um, I won't say that it's necessarily. I, I do kind of feel like it's expect. It, it kind of almost expects things to either be countries or, or maybe states. Um, and 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 so it's it's not exactly like it doesn't exactly make sense to just click on, for instance, Otago, and say Dunedin, because I mean. Uh, it, you know, there are lots of cities in Otago, and Dunedin is not, strictly speaking, a cap. It's, well, it's not. It's not a capital city. Um, Canterbury, uh, Christchurch, I mean, that's that's nice, but there's also Oamaru. There's uh, actual Canterbury. So there's a bunch of stuff there that, yeah, this doesn't quite add up, but whatever. Um, and anyway, you can um, explore the map, which you just click around and kind of explore the map. Uh, or you can... Um, I think I thought I saw something about taking a test. Place regions on the map. There we go. How many questions do you want? Uh, let's just do two questions. And so now it's kind of, I've got a little puzzle piece, and I can place the region somewhere on the map, and, and hopefully I get it right, and it tells me whether I've got it right or wrong as a sort of a report card afterwards. Um, I guess you could probably, can you also place capitals or no yeah so you can you can prompt for questions about the capital cities of the capital of otago is uh, well apparently is dunedin that's not really true the capital of taranaki is i have no idea um the capital of hawks bay is yeah see none, none of this this doesn't make any sense um because these are not correct but it's it's a nice i get what it's going for so anyway my the the thing that I'm interested in this I mean first of all it it's a great little testing tool I'm sure for geography I mean whether you use the nomenclature of um capitals and and regions and things like that or whether you're looking at states or countries or whatever uh it doesn't doesn't really matter I think there's a lot to be learned here if you're looking to improve your geography knowledge of a certain place or of the world so that's that's cool but what really kind of intrigues me is what would happen if you had an imaginary land that you wanted to learn, like, let's say, Middle Earth or something from, from, well, everyone knows where Middle Earth is. So let's say you had Middle Earth and you wanted to learn the regions of Middle Earth or or, or whatever, you know, like a, a sci-fi planet or something like that. You wanted to learn learn that territory. This would be a great tool for that. This would be really a, a quite a cool little interactive thing for that. Um, of course, one would have to learn how to make a map specifically for K geography. The good news is that K geography is open source. I have no doubt that it's possible to learn how to make a map for that. Uh, I have not gone to the trouble to do that, however, so uh, I don't know what that 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 I don't know how to do that. Um, but I do know <laughs> from zooming in on the map uh, that it's not a vector, uh, which would be a, a pretty cool improvement, I think, for for that to be a, a vector. But I get I get that it's probably there's probably a very good reason for it not to be a vector. Uh, it does pixelate quite a lot if you zoom in, but that's fine. I mean, I'm sure there's, like I say, I'm sure there's a very good reason. And either way, the the job that it does, which is teach geography, is 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 it it achieves that goal. So it's a neat little application. I find it intriguing to to put educational tools to frivolous use, and I think that would be a great. A great thing to do with K geography, but you'd have to learn how to do the map first. So there's the 
there's the entry, the, the, the barrier to entry, such as it is, which, like I say, open source, not that much of a barrier. It's just really just finding the time to do it. Okay, next up is KGET, K-G-E-T. KGET is a fantastic application, and um, in a way, it's a little bit of a duplicate application uh, related to or compared to KTorrent. So KGET is or was the sort of the component of KDE that did or could serve as the download manager for the Conqueror um, file manager slash web browser. But but if you were getting a file, I guess you were probably using it more as a web browser, probably. But um, I remember for a very long time when I was using Conqueror as a web browser, you could select KGET as your download manager. And, and that was nice because you could download something and sort of Instead of having that that thing be handled by Conqueror, you, you could just offload it to KGET, which most of the time didn't matter one way or the other. But sometimes, especially if you were doing like a torrent or something, it was beautiful. You could just send it over to KGET and KGET would load it and put it, you know, in whatever predefined location you wanted it. And it would start the torrent or the download, the very, very long download if it was a big, you know, four gigabyte Slackware ISO or, or whatever. So it, it was, it was really useful and, and very nicely integrated into Conqueror. I have since migrated away from Conqueror. I mean, I'm talking like 10 years ago now, uh, because Conqueror just doesn't seem to be able to handle a lot of, um, the modern web, and I'm not blaming Conqueror for that. I'm, I'm blaming mostly the modern web for that. Um, so I don't use Conqueror really as a web web browser at all anymore, and so I don't really use KGET all that much either. And and that was like I say, KGET that experience was quite a while ago. That's when I was using KGET. Um, since then, I have used KGET. Because it is a, it can be a very good torrent application as well. So if you're torrenting something, then you can you can do it with KGET, and it works fine. Um, nothing wrong with KGET. I will say that I I think I I tend to default to KTorrent for whatever reason. I don't exactly remember what that reason is. If I'm honest, I, I just can't think of like what what the feature that I prefer in KTorrent is exactly. But I do know that there are, you know, I, I'm, I guess I'm used to KTorrent is really what it boils down to. There are a lot, there's a lot of filtering in KTorrent that you can do. And, and I don't think that KGET quite has the same rich interface. But Again, as I recall, KGET, it's not just a torrent uh, application. It is a, a downloader. So if you want, I don't I don't actually know what you would use KGET for sort of as a standalone application. I mean, you could use it, like I say, for a, for a torrent, but um, you could also, I guess, you know what? Okay, here's what you could use it as. Here, here's a way to think of it as. It's a front end, a, a graphical front end for WGET, in, in a way. Don't. Don't take that too literally, uh, not only because I don't know th- what it uses on the back end to download I- stuff with, but also just because if you do that, you might think, oh, cool, so WGET with a bunch of selection boxes for, like, dash dash mirror and all the other things that you can do with WGET. And I, I don't, I don't in fact know that it can do 
all that stuff. Um, like I say, I haven't really used it in a while, so it's it's difficult to say. Uh, I mean, not on a regular basis. Um, so if you open up KGET, you get a little you you get a list of all the downloads that you've done recently with KGET, if anything. So. Uh, it may well be empty for you. And the buttons along the top, the top toolbar, include things like new download, start, pause, remove, and remove finished. So if you click on new download and then enter a URL that you want to download something from, so for instance, here's um, example.com slash index.html, and the destination directory for that is set to downloads, as, as one might expect. And I'll click OK to that, and as you might expect also, that happens very, very quickly. And so then if I go to my um, downloads directory, I should be able to find something called index.html, which I predict if I open that, let's just open it in maybe Emacs, uh, and then, yeah, example domain, uh, and then this, so this is the the standard sort of, um, well, it's the standard index page of, of example.com is exactly what it is. So you can, you know, download arbitrary things through kget. Why you would do that over, like, awget, I don't know, except that maybe there's a good reason for it. Maybe, maybe you want to ensure that a web browser on someone's system doesn't try to be, doesn't try to do anything overly clever. You just want to ensure that someone downloads exactly the thing that you send them. And we've all had that before, right? We've sent someone a link, we've said, download that. And they paste it into their browser, and their browser decides that that file type is too dangerous to download. Or that website is too suspect to download from. Or that's a file type that the browser can handle on its own. Why don't you let the browser open that PDF for you or unzip that file for you and put it into a surprising location or whatever? I, I'm starting to make things up here, but we, we've all had that experience. Well, if if you can tell someone, hey, open up KGET and paste exactly this link into the field that set, you know, you click on new downloads and then paste in this link, well, now you're removing a, a, a layer of kind of interpretation. So I, I could see using kget for exactly that purpose. So it's a handy little, like I said, front end to wget. It's a thing that you could tell someone to open in in the event that you don't want to have to bother them with opening a terminal and pasting this command in. No, 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 not the dollar sign, just the part after that. No, no, just paste it. No, you can't do a control V. You have to control, control shift V. No, V as in, you know how you paste with control V? Yeah, control shift V. No, V as in the, the, the same thing that you do with paste, except also add a shift key in. No, all at the same time. You get the picture. Um, so yeah, kget could, could be useful for some, some use cases. And, uh, if you run a really good torrent client, ktorrent is the thing to look at, which I, I imagine will be in this list as well. Let's talk about kglobalxl. No, first, let's go get coffee, then let's talk about kglobalxl.
original blend of Bomber is described as as this. If you're drinking it with with cream or, or with milk, you'll get flavors of orange, milk chocolate, and honeycomb. If you're drinking it black, you'll get cocoa, lemon, and milk chocolate. Related flavors, you have to admit. Different order, presumably that's significant. And one is lemon instead of orange, but still that kind of citrusy tang, I guess. And the origins of these beans are Colombia, Rwanda, and Brazil. Brazil. And that's how they describe it from uh, at Flight Coffee. There's a whole paragraph here on my trading card about about the the coffee, but honestly, it's it's a little bit it's a little bit it's just flavor, really. The one. The, the original, the one, the only. If you visited one of our customers across New Zealand, you'll most likely have tasted our firstborn. I, I guess the firstborn is their coffee, not not their child. It all started back in 2009 when we sat around a campfire and talked about what we'd love to see in our dream blend. Probably see, meaning taste. Uh, out there representing us in the cafes and on the streets. Big sweetness, sparkling acidity, and, 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 and creamy mouthful were all agreed upon. And of course, a blend that black and white coffee drinkers could happily and equally appreciate. It's 18.5 grams in, 30 grams out. 27 to 32 seconds. That is flight coffee. Uh, New Zealand is the home of the flat white, I, I guess. And a flat white is sort of a, it's really kind of a, kind of a cappuccino or, or maybe a latte, really. Yeah, a latte, I guess. And, and it's double shot espresso with steamed milk and some froth on top. So yeah, it's basically a latte. I guess there must be something unique about it. I don't know. Um, and, and you can get other, varieties of coffee as well but but flat white is kind of the big and the famous one and it's also conveniently when when confronted with a decision when i'm standing at a cafe counter the only one i can remember off the top of my head is flat white um there's another one that i always get wrong and so i i've forced myself to stop even trying but it, it's called a long black and a long black is just it's it's a um it's an americano essentially but i think they must it must be a, like an americano with an extra shot of espresso or something that's that's what i i believe it to be um and then with a long black you could also you know you could again you could put uh milk in it you could have um f- milk and uh steamed milk whatever however you want it so long black flat white those are the two big ones um in new zealand and that's what this trading card is referring to about flight coffee i'm I'm getting near the the bottom of the barrel on my on my uh on my bomber coffee um bin so i'm gonna have to switch it up a little bit and try something else and i might um i might try i mean flight has been great to me and i've really enjoyed it but in the interest of variety, I might go back to the C4, the C4 coffee well, which um, Carl actually introduced me to when he sent me a bunch of bags of C4 coffee as a, as a housewarming present. So thank you again, Carl, out there, wherever you may be. And um, yeah, we'll see what I end up with. It'll be, um, it'll be exciting, I think, for everyone. So especially for me. Um, okay, so let's talk about that K-Global Axel application that I hinted um, about before going on the coffee break. K-Global Global Axel 
is a, a global accelerator. Now, if you don't know what that means, and I don't know where that terminology comes from, I, I, I don't actually, I don't know if that's a KDE thing, or if it's a Linux thing, or if it's actually just a computer thing that I don't, that I never knew about. I'm not sure. But an accelerator is at least, at the very least, it's what KDE seems to call a uh, keyboard shortcut. And I, I don't know why it's called an accelerator. I guess because it accelerates the speed at which you can do things. Um, a global accelerator means that it's a keyboard shortcut that is global, meaning that it doesn't matter what window you have in focus. This keyboard shortcut works no matter what. Your desktop understands, or not even your desktop, really. I mean, desktop environment understands that a certain combination of keys means to perform a certain action. I cannot tell you what a big deal this was for me as a new Linux user a decade ago. Um, I I came from, uh, from a life of using Mac OS. That's what I switched from when I came to Linux. And I had it in my head for whatever reason, and I, I guess it's just because by my my perception was that Mac ha- was was a global environment. So everything on a Mac, I thought, and and it's very significant that I'm saying I thought and I believed, because because this is all wrong. But to a Mac user, I guess compared to something else, it feels like everything is global. The menu is global, like when you go to an application, your whole desktop environment shifts into that application, essentially. And I used to love that. I believe I've, I'm sure, I am on record on this very podcast as saying global menu is the only correct option. Like, I was convinced that a global menu was the only right way to make a desktop. I don't know why I thought that, except that that was the only experience I had. It was a nice experience because it was the only experience. And I decided that that was the correct way that a desktop should be designed. I no longer think that even a little bit. It's so strange. It's something that I clung to for so long. And if you asked me, I would have never changed my mind on that. Never. That was such an important thing to me. Because to me, that represented that the OS, and, and I say OS meaning desktop environment, but again, to, to, a, to a user who doesn't know the difference, uh, to me, a global menu meant that the OS was kind of always monitoring or always listening for a command, for, for something. So for me, this global concept of a, of a global menu, which therefore had global keyboard uh, accelerators, global accelerators, because in other words, if you ever pressed like command, I don't know, comma, I think it was, your, your, syst- your system preferences or whatever they call it would would pop up. Or if you hit um, command shift A, your application window would pop up. Command shift U, your utilities folder would pop up. You know, little things like that. To me, that was a, a completely integrated experience because I could I could equally make a call out to the OS or the desktop as I could also make a call to the application that was in that was in front of me that was on my screen and that was a a really really important aspect of Mac OS to me so when I started using Linux one of the things that I really enjoyed about for instance Fluxbox is that I could define most of those things 
myself. Like I could come up with a bunch of sort of global things through the Fluxbox settings. I could define my own keyboard shortcuts. And so I could hit the super key and uh, T and a terminal would pop up. A super key F and Firefox would pop up. Super key X and URXVT would pop up. And little uh, super delta D, delta, and dolphin would, would pop up. Little things like that. I mean, it was huge. It was huge to me because that felt like a fully integrated sort of experience. And then I knew that control the control key would control the application that was staring me, staring at me right then and there. And then when I got to KDE, I, I kind of found that a lot of um, a lot of the, I guess, global accelerators by default were, if anything, were centered around the F keys, the the function keys at the top of the keyboard. Now, coming from a Mac, um, like an old school Mac user, I didn't know what function keys were. I didn't know what they were used for. I still don't honestly love them. Like conceptually, I, I do actually like that there are keys that are single purpose because I mean you have to admit that all the letter keys all the arrow keys all the shift keys all the all the keys they're 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 pretty they're pretty loaded you know like especially if you have the compose key um active you you've got lowercase letter uppercase letter and then some kind of third level layer letter and then maybe a control key plus that letter and then maybe an alt key plus that letter and then an alt uh, control you know you you got so many different combinations which i mean in itself is powerful but it is kind of nice to have single purpose buttons like i want a a very specific thing that i have that that happens a lot i want that to happen now hit the button easy the problem for me is that i never remember any of the f keys they're they're completely meaningless completely impossible for me to remember f1 through f something f12 i can't remember what what what's what especially from application to application so anyway in in kde i wasn't finding as many global accelerators as i wanted and then i discovered k global accelerator or excel and that lets you define your own keyboard shortcuts for practically anything you want and that changed everything for me it made my experience completely different i mean i had so many keyboard shortcuts set up that once again in my mind were mimicking the way things happened on mac os and it was exactly what i needed to help me settle in to a linux desktop funny conclusion to this whole story is that i later went back to mac i didn't go back but i mean i was i later found myself using a mac os computer because at work i was managing a bunch of mac computers at a, at a, it was a film school. And so I was, I would, I would, I didn't use it for work. I used Linux for work, but I still had to maintain the Macs in the, in the classrooms. So I was using, I was sitting at a, a Mac computer at one point and I thought to myself, well, this should be easy. I've, I've done this before. I used to use Mac. This should be pretty simple. And I started sort of re-experiencing the interface after a very long time away from anything Mac related. Uh, this was, this itself was about 10 years ago so it's 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 actually been longer that now i haven't been near a mac in in even longer but uh, at the time i'd been away for it for a good probably five or seven years or something and so i was i'd sat sat down at it tried to figure out that's not true three years it had only been three years either way sat down at the stupid thing tried to figure out you know tried to sort of get get back into the 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 rhythm of using that desktop 
and I realized that I had imagined that it was a lot more global. There was more separation between application and desktop than there actually is. In my mind, I had I had sort of formulated this scheme where the command key, which is their sort of super key on Mac, the command key in my head was for global stuff. Like if you wanted your desktop to do something, you hit the command key and some letter combination. If you wanted your application to do something, I don't know what I thought you did. I guess I just thought you maybe there were other... I don't know what I thought. I didn't think that you hit control. I knew that you, I know that you don't hit control almost ever on a Mac. Like it's just not a key that they use for some reason. And it is really weird because it would make so much sense. I mean, I don't want anyone from Apple to, to hear this, but I mean, honestly, people at Apple, you, you should just make the command key, the, the sort of the Mac OS key, make that the global accelerator key. And then use apple make applications use command um control and alt and you know control shift and alt shift or whatever whatever combination you want. But it just makes no sense to double up to 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 betray sort of the separation between desktop and, and application. And frankly, I think that it would make a lot of sense for for Linux desktops to do the same thing. And this I'm fine for us to all hear this tip. Let's make the super key the OS key, and, and again, by OS, I actually mean desktop environment, but I'm using it sort of in the old way that I used the OS, which I just thought an OS was the graphics that you saw when you turned on a computer. Uh, so, you know, let, let make the super key your desktop environment global accelerator, and then just reserve control and alt and control shift and alt shift and alt control shift and all those other combinations for just the, within the application. Because then there'd be never, there, there would never be any kind of, you know, th there's a namespace, right? Like you want to control the computer, you use the super key. You want to control the application, use the control, the alt, whatever key. It would be so simple to me. And I don't know why there's not more of that. I guess in a way, maybe there's not more of that because in Linux, there's, there, there, there is a desktop environment, but is there really? Like, we have it so finely defined that your, you know, desktop environment really, I mean, what is it? it it's like your window manager and then, uh, your, like, maybe a, a panel of some sort. And then, and then you got your applications that fall within that window, within that desktop environment. So, like the concept of what is global really is the question. Um, and maybe that's why Global Excel, like if you actually look at Global Accelerators, there there really aren't that many of them um, on KDE these days. The soup, just the super key, I think. Yeah, just the super key opens the KDE menu. Uh, I guess what is it? Alt space opens k runner and there's probably something else that i don't know about but i mean that's that's kind of well yeah there's like super tab or maybe it's alt tab no it's super oh alt tab i guess would be a global accelerator uh super tab i think takes you to a different activity and so on so there's a couple of 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 global accelerators like, i guess was f4 closes an application or is it alt f4 i don't really know um Whatever those things are, I mean, honestly, I, I remap, I still remap some of them to, to old Mac OS keyboard combinations that I just can't, I can't lose. They're just too ingrained. So Super W actually closes a window for me. 
because that's it was Command W, I, I think, on on Mac. Um, but anyway, point is, I think the separation between sort of like the the computer and the application, I think that would be really smart and it would be quite convenient, at least for me. So, I mean, hey, that's one one vote for it. Let's let's make that change. Okay, next after K. Global XL is K Gold Runner. And if you think it is a game, you're right, it is a game. So I'm pretty sure that this is, um, I think it's called Load Runner, is what it was called. L O D E Runner. It's a platformer. And for whatever reason, and I don't know the reason, that's why I'm saying for whatever reason, that that's not like a dig at it. I'm just saying I don't know the reason. For whatever reason, it uses the mouse as your controller by default. And I, I, I don't imagine the sort of the original game Load Runner would have had access to a mouse. I could be misremembering. It may be, maybe, maybe they, maybe mouses were a thing then. Um, but I would have thought that it would have used either a controller, like an Atari controller, or maybe a keyboard. I don't know. But, um, anyway, this, this Gold Runner thing uses a mouse. And so it, it does take practice to get used to sort of the nuances of controlling a a person who won't stop running like that's all he does is run like that's that's his that's that's all he does throughout the whole game and it can be kind of difficult to to maneuver him um such that you can get him to sort of you have to kind of anticipate i guess where he's going to go and what you want him to do before he kind of before he gets to that spot, um, there's there's some there's some neat little mechanics in it though. So there's I mean aside from learning to control your little dude with a mouse, um, there are there's digging that you can do. The digging is I would not say terribly intuitive. It it it's um, maybe part of the puzzle. Is is you, you kind of know I mean you can tell which bricks are diggable, but once you've digged dug into one spot it it doesn't seem to be super intuitive as to where you can dig after that and and so you can kind of easily trap yourself into a spot and then get dirt filled back in over you even as you attempt to dig further down um there's also um sort of um there 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 are ropes that you can kind of overhand uh cross so they're they're like inverse platforms, I guess. You know, you're you're running along a platform. There's a big gap, and there's another platform on the other side. But if you see a, a little thin line over the two, then if you let your little guy keep, just keep running, he'll he'll just automatically grab onto that rope and hand over hand and over hand get to the next platform. So that's kind of satisfying. There's also the satisfaction of him not having like he doesn't have health points or anything. Like he can fall several stories, like twenty floors, and he doesn't care. He's he's fine. He just keeps running. So that's kind of satisfying in a way as well. I think. I don't know how I feel about the mouse. Uh, controls you can switch over to keyboard controls it does have that option and it detects even when you try to use the keyboard it it understands that you're trying to use the keyboard it'll offer very kindly to use the keyboard uh, to, to let you use the keyboard as your control scheme but it does gently encourage you to attempt to learn the mouse uh, controls. 
So it is a very specific game, I feel, you know, like it, 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 it clearly knows what it wants to be and how it wants to be played. And I, I don't know if I understand it personally. Like that's, it's not a game that I, it is not the sort of game that I, I would really play these days. Um, but I am kind of curious as to, you know, kind of like what a speedrunner would, would make of that sort of game. Cause I mean, it, I do get the sense that there's a, there's a high degree of of precision being encouraged here, especially with that that insistence that you use the mouse. But if you think about it, like the mouse lets you do things before your little guy gets there. Because if so, if you know that he's running laterally to the right, then and there's a ladder coming up, then before he ever gets to the ladder, you can just nudge your you can just nuance your mouse downward a little bit and it'll pick that up so that when he when he gets to the ladder like right then he'll he'll start going down the ladder there's no there's no millisecond delay of arrow 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 or just you know hold down the arrow or hit the arrow and then try to get get the the down arrow right when he's over the ladder there's nothing like that you don't have to bother with that you can just kind of like gesture more more or less in advance of where you want him to go and he'll go there I mean, I'm not saying you can gesture like 20 times and he'll follow the pattern. That would be an interesting um, mechanic, though. But you can get him to places, I think, a little bit quicker than maybe you might be able to do with like a keyboard. So it's a it's a fascinating, fascinating experience. You should try it. See if you like it. K Gold Runner. I think that's about all the time I got for this episode. But tune in next time. We'll start out with KGPG to go on from there. Thanks for listening. Talk to you then. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted until next time thanks for listening and keep the source open
wits about you and things begin to take on the proper perspective. 